You are listening to sermon audio from College Creek Church in Annapolis, Maryland. For more information on this local body of believers, visit us online at collegecreekchurch.org or in person every Sunday at 11 a.m. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the reason that I'm a Christian today. And I, and I don't just mean that in the, the really obvious way, in the traditional um, sense that we might consider it, right? I mean, sure, right? Without the resurrection of Christ, the death of Christ would be completely meaningless without the resurrection. No one would be saved. And we certainly wouldn't call ourselves Christians if it weren't for the resurrection of Jesus. But I don't mean it in that way, um, what I, what I mean when I say that the resurrection of Jesus is the reason that I'm a Christian today is, is completely different. What I mean to say is that I can't get around the resurrection of Jesus. And believe me, I have tried to get around the resurrection of Jesus when I've faced in, in the course of my life, when I've faced theological crises in my life, when other things in scripture don't make sense, or when I am just tempted maybe to just throw the whole thing out because I don't like what it is saying, the thing that I can't get around, the thing that keeps me a Christian over and over again is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I can't get around it. I can't come up with a single reason, a single way that it could not be true. And so when, I've, when I have fallen so in love with my sin that I've wanted to just run from God and abandon the whole thing again, when I've fallen so in love with my sin that I really, really, really wanted the Bible to not be true so that I could live the life that I wanted to live, I cannot get around the resurrection. And it keeps me in Christ. I didn't want it to be true, right? Because if the resurrection is true, then that means that Jesus is actually God. And that means that I had to actually obey him and I actually needed to follow him. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the reason that I'm a Christian today. And it is the most joyful and hopeful truth imaginable, but it is also terrifying. It's joyous, right? Because it means that Jesus is God and King, but it is terrifying because it means that I must bow before him. But it's joyous because it means that I can actually inherit eternal life. But it is terrifying, frankly, because the concept of eternal life is terrifying. When I was a kid, I um, used to stay awake at, at night thinking about songs that we would sing in church about eternity, like Amazing Grace. If we sang Amazing Grace, I didn't sleep that night. Because it said, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And I was like, whoa, what does that even mean? Eternity is terrifying, but it's joyous as well. Right? This news of the resurrection is joyous because it means that heaven is real, but it is terrifying because it means that hell is real as well. Right? And the most 
literal way possible, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. And that, and that fills me with joy and hope because there is a whole lot of brokenness in this world that needs to be changed. But that also fills me with terror because there's a whole lot of things in my own life that need to be changed as well. Because now, right, now I am, am an ambassador of that newness to the world. I'm supposed to be going out and telling other people about all of the things that need to change because the kingdom has come and I'm supposed to tell people who are willing, they have proven over and over again to kill people with such news. And yet that's the thing that I'm called to do because the resurrection is real. And that mixture of, of joy and fear that we might feel even today is something I can't even imagine what it felt like on that very first Easter Sunday when those, when those women came to the empty tomb. That first Easter Sunday in all of the gospel accounts of the resurrection, we find that they experienced both joy and fear at the same time. And so this morning, we want to read one such account from Matthew chapter 28. If you've been with us for the last several months, you'll know this, that we've been working through the book of Matthew since the beginning of December. And just last week, we considered the death of Christ, the, the loneliness of the cross, because we saw not only Jesus hanging on the cross, but hanging there on the cross all alone. In the middle of the day, unexplainable darkness covered the earth. And then with a loud cry, he breathes his last. He gives up his life. And it says that the earth shook and the graves opened and the temple curtain tore in two and the centurion confessed truly, this was the son of God. And then just after that, in, in chapter 27, we're told that they buried him in a tomb that was borrowed from a guy named Joseph. And I just want to show you one thing about that burial um, as we move forward. In Matthew 27, 61, it says this about the burial. It says, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting opposite the tomb. I just want you to tuck that away. It is the same two women that we are going to encounter in our text this morning in chapter 28. They saw the tomb being closed on, on Friday night. They were there, but now on Sunday morning, they saw it back open again. And so let me just read for us our text from Matthew 28. We want to consider verses 1 to 15 of our text. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew 28. Um, if you picked up one of these Bibles on your way in, you'll find it on page 926. And if you don't have a Bible of your own at home, we please take one of those with you. It's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's word of your own. Let me read Matthew 28, 1 to 15. It says, Now after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and set on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen as he said. 
Come, see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money and did as they were directed and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So the two Marys were there when the tomb was closed. They saw it. Right? They saw the body go in. They saw the stone rolled in front of it, put in place. They knew the tomb. They weren't confused. They didn't show up at the wrong cemetery on that day. They knew where they were going and they knew what to expect, right? They knew what to expect when they got there. They were gonna see a tomb with a stone in front of it and a dead body inside of it. But when they got there, Things were not as they had anticipated, right? Instead of finding soldiers guarding the tomb, they found them just passed out in fear. And instead of finding Jesus, they, they find an angel of the Lord. And the angel is kind, of, kind enough to open the tomb up for them so they can look inside. Jesus is already gone. He opens the tomb up so they can go inside and see that Jesus, in fact, is not there, right? They went to find Jesus, but they found something far better. They went to mourn his death, but they left trying to comprehend his resurrection. But you know, Jesus really, Jesus was just doing them what he said he was going to do. He just did exactly what he already told them he was going to do. That's what the angel says. He says, just like he said he would. Kind of like, why are you even here? Like I had to come all the way down here to earth to let you into the tomb to see that he's not there. He told you over and over again, he wasn't gonna be there. What'd you come back out here for? Jesus told them repeatedly, I'm gonna be killed by the Jewish leaders. He told them repeatedly, I'm going to rise Again, in fact, on Thursday night, the very night that he was arrested, he told them this. This is Matthew 26, 31 and 32. It says, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away from me this night for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee in other words, it's kind of strange that they went to the tomb when Jesus told them to meet him in Galilee. But it's hardly the only time in scripture that Jesus told them this was going to happen. In fact, this is what's crazy. 
He said it enough times that the chief priest and the Pharisees were afraid that the disciples were going to fake the resurrection. That's how often Jesus talked about the resurrection, that the leaders of the Jews were convinced they were going to try to pull off a giant hoax. And so they put a guard at the tomb, but right, little did they know that the disciples either didn't seem to remember these prophecies. They certainly didn't believe these prophecies. They were terrified that they were the next in line for execution. And so while the, the Pharisees were placing a seal on the tomb so that the body couldn't be taken out, the disciples were locking themselves into a room so the Pharisees couldn't get in. But Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. He rose from the dead. And that changed everything. And so how do we respond to the resurrection of Jesus? I think we can look at the example of those in our text. We'll see two things that we ought to feel and two things that we ought to do. So two things we ought to feel. It's right here in the text. It says in verse eight that they departed from the tomb with fear and great joy. The resurrection brings fear. Theologian Esau Macaulay says, Easter is a frightening prospect. For the women, the only thing more terrifying than a world with Jesus dead was one in which he was alive. The resurrection of Jesus lets us know that once again, we have far underestimated the power of Christ. Just just think, just when we think we've gotten sort of a handle on who he is, we finally figured out this this God-man, Jesus Christ, and then he does something like this and lets us know that we have not adequately appreciated his power and his calling. He does something so powerfully outside of our concept of reality that all we can do is tremble in fear. And it's certainly not the first time this has happened to the followers of Jesus. Mark chapter four tells us about a time that the disciples and Jesus are, they're in a boat they're out on, on the Sea of Galilee and there's this storm coming that's threatening to break the boat apart and Jesus is just sleeping, right? And, and the storm's coming and they really think, we're about to die here. This boat is gonna capsize. And when they fear for their lives enough, at their wits end, the disciples run to Jesus and they ask him to help them. And, and he gets up in Mark 4, 39, it says, he awoke And he rebuked the wind and the sea and said, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And then he says to them, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were so afraid. They were certain that they were about to die. But then with a word, the sea is just glass again. And this is what it says in verse 41. It says, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Perhaps the only thing more frightening than a storm destroying your boat is a person who can calm a storm with a word. Peace, be still. They had so underestimated his power and his glory that when they saw it on full display, it was utterly terrifying to them. And here again, right at the empty 
tomb, we find they have underestimated his power and his glory. It's certainly not the only reason, though, that it is terrifying. The resurrection is fearful because it means that the kingdom of God is moving forward. The, the, The resurrection is terrifying. It seems like a really positive thing, but it means that we can't just coast through life. Jesus and his kingdom are moving forward. Jesus is alive and that has demands on my life. If I could quote Esau Macaulay again, he says, the terrifying prospect of Easter is that God called these women to return to the same world that crucified Jesus with a very dangerous gift. Hope in the power of God, the unending reservoir of forgiveness and an abundance of love. It would make them seem like fools, Macaulay says. Who could believe such a thing? It is right for the resurrection to cause fear because it means that we have kingdom work to do. We have the work of standing up against injustice. We have the work of pushing back against racism. We have the work of bringing hope to the distraught and peace to the frantic and joy to the suffering. I I might remind us of our, our own church's vision a vision that says that we want to see a diverse people from across the College Creek Corridor gathered together to worship God, to see people set free from fears, pain, failures, and most of all sin, so much so that the College Creek Corridor would not be a place of chaos and death, but of life and flourishing. Brother and sister, we have work to do. And that is terrifying. We are going to be opposed on every side. The disciples were opposed on every side. They were opposed by the Romans. And then as soon as some of the Jews became Christians, they were opposed within their own camp. Opposition will come from every side. The work of the kingdom is terrifying work. That's what we're called to in in the resurrection. But in that same resurrection, we remember this, that Jesus has overcome the world. He says, "In, in in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so while we have fear, we have great joy because Jesus isn't just powerful and glorious and alive, but he is for us. He is with us. It is is terrifying for Jesus to calm the storm, but as fearful as that moment is, it is also joyous because you realize we're going to make it through the storm. As terrifying as it is for him to raise again from the dead, it is joyous because it means that all the other things in this life that I fear are under his feet. Verse eight tells us that they departed not only with fear, but with great joy, joy because Jesus was alive. And all those that may have been, they may have been scared, right? Of those who killed Jesus, but they know this, they can't defeat him. They killed him, but he came right back to life. Right, 1 Corinthians 15, it's reflections on the resurrection. And in that, it says this, that God has placed everything, in subjection to Jesus. 
Here's what that means. It means that whatever your fears are, they are under the authority of, they are in subjection to Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Everything and everyone is subject to Jesus's authority. And that means that we can take all of our fears to him. We can take them to him, just give them over to him. And here's what 1 John says. 1 John says, first it says, God is love. And then it says, there's no fear in love. God is love. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So if we walk with God, if we walk in his love, we don't have to fear anything at all because his love overwhelms and drives out all of our fears. And that's why when they show up at the tomb, the angel has to say to them, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. They meet Jesus along the way. And Jesus says in verse 10, hey, don't be afraid because perfect love drives out fear. Because of all the things we fear, all the things, listen, it's all the things that we fear tremble and fall down like dead men before the glory of God, before the love of God. These women are on their way to the tomb. And they know we're gonna get to that tomb and there's gonna be a Roman guard in front of the tomb. They are fearful. They're moving towards an encounter with Roman soldiers. And if you're Jewish at the time, the last thing that you wanna encounter is Roman soldiers. They were afraid. And not just because they're Jewish, but because they're Jewish women. They were walking into a place full of fear. But these soldiers, the very ones that they feared when they saw not even God, when they saw the angel of God, they fell down like dead men before the glory of the Lord. Whatever you're afraid of, Jesus is bigger. Whatever it is. He's more powerful, he's more glorious, and whatever it is, it is in subjection to him. So you don't have to be afraid anymore. Whatever it is, he's conquered it already. If you were here last week, you may remember that I said that if you're tired or if you're hurting or if you're beat down or if you feel like there's no one who's for you or if you're facing racial trauma, if you're facing temptation, whatever it is, Jesus has been there too. But here's the thing that I want you to remember. He hasn't just been there. He didn't just step into the middle of it, but he conquered over all of it. And then he gives that victory to us to his people, to his children. On the cross, Jesus squared off against sin and Satan and death and destruction and and suffering and, and injustice and rejection. And he faced them all full on in a battle. And they thought they had won when he said, it is finished. But in the resurrection, he claimed his victory over every last one of them. Finished. They're the ones that are finished. They no longer have power because they are in subjection to him. And that is the most joyous and hopeful and glorious news that I can possibly tell you that even death could not hold Jesus down. So if you are in Christ, it cannot hold you down. 
the resurrection of Jesus should fill us with fear, yes, but also with great joy. And then it should cause us to do two things. It's exactly what the women do. Verse 9 tells us that they're making their way to tell others, and Jesus meets them. He says, greetings, and they just fall on their feet, and they grab a hold of him, and they begin to worship The resurrection of Christ ought to cause us to worship. You know, the Bible only really gives two pieces of evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. It doesn't tell us how it happened. It just says, here are two things you should know. One, there's no body in the tomb, and two, a bunch of people saw him. Those are the only two pieces. We see them both right here in this passage. Evidence is the tomb was empty, right? So they started off there, and that was kind of startling to them. The tomb is empty. What happened? What's going on here? But then when they see and interact with Jesus, when they actually have an encounter with him, they could do nothing else but just fall down and worship him. It's the most That's the most logical thing that we could even imagine to do. So let's take Jesus out of the equation. How would you respond if someone told you they were God and that they were going to rise from the dead? And then you watch their dead body get put inside a tomb. And then a couple of days later, the tomb was empty and the guy that told you he was going to rise is walking around. How would you respond to that? Because I feel like if it's me, the way that I would, I would fall down and worship him, right? It's the only logical thing to do. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And so we worship. The most logical response to the resurrection of Jesus is worship. And yet, frankly, we do it so seldom. Right? We are, we're just so seldom willing to fall down and worship him. Because we're thinking perhaps about ourselves, perhaps about everybody else in the room. We're thinking about a whole bunch of people, but we're not thinking about Jesus. Because if we thought about what he actually did, we would fall down and worship him. We get far more excited about a comeback on the football field or on the basketball court than we do the greatest comeback of all times, that Jesus would raise again from the dead. And so I don't Listen, I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what your relationship with Jesus is. I know a lot of people just kind of come to church on on Easter because it's Easter. But, But consider this. If Jesus really rose from the dead, doesn't that just demand that you would worship him? Right, and, and that's, that's the thing. That's what I was saying at the very beginning of all of this. In my own life, there have been all sorts of things that I don't understand. I've, I have studied theology a lot. I've studied the Bible a lot. And here's what I'm gonna tell you. I don't understand it. There's a whole bunch of it that I do not understand. And even more than that, I don't like it. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there I don't like. I wish it said something different a lot of the times, but here's the thing. I can't get around the resurrection. I can't get around it. And as long as I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, I must worship him because there's simply no other way to respond. So you could believe that he didn't do it, but if he did it, how could you not worship him? And if he did it, how could you keep it 
to yourself. Now that's the second thing we see as soon as the Marys see the evidence of the resurrection. They are sent on mission to tell other people about it. The angel shows them an empty tomb and then he sends them out to tell others. They encounter Jesus on the way and then he sends them out to tell others. If Jesus really is who he says he is, if there really is great joy and hope to be found in him, if he really has conquered over everything that we fear, then how can we keep it to ourselves? The resurrection demands that we would tell other people about it, that we would share our our fearful but joyful worship with others, that we would invite them in to the same sort of thing. And that's what we see happening all through this passage, but all through the New Testament. In this passage, as soon as they received the message, they didn't just go tell people. It says they went quickly and they ran to go and share it. And if you move forward just a couple of of days, I suppose, months in the story, what you'll find in the book of Acts is that This message of the good news of Jesus, nobody can keep it to themselves. And so we have these two guys, Peter and John. Peter and John preaching, 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 preaching. Talking about the resurrection. They just want everybody to know that Jesus rose from the dead. So much so that the very same council, the very same people who killed Jesus, bring them in. And they said, listen, you can't talk about it anymore. We don't want to hear you talking about this Jesus anymore. And this is what they say in Acts chapter 4, 19 and 20. They say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, but we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. He said, we, we just simply can't shut up about it. I can't keep myself from talking. Some of you know what it's like to not be able to keep yourself from saying certain words. You know what that's like, right? These guys cannot keep themselves from talking about it. The resurrection is always on their mind and always on their tongue. We cannot keep ourselves from talking about what we have seen and we have heard so much so that persecution arises in the land. They kill this guy named Stephen. The people get spread all over the world and everywhere they go, they talk about it. That's why the church is what the church is today is because these people looked square into the fear that all of the persecution brought and said, you know what? This is terrifying, but Jesus has already conquered it. And so I'm going to talk about it. And they told everyone that they met the glory of Jesus. And so we proclaim the gospel. And let me just tell you one more reason why we have to proclaim the gospel. We have to proclaim the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. It's because lies are being told everywhere. Lies are being, it's right here in our passage. As soon as the story of Jesus's resurrection began to spread, two women start running off to tell the good news of the resurrection and what happens at the same time as they were going, another story gets concocted and a lie begins to be spread. A lie about how this whole thing is a hoax, a false 
narrative about Christ comes up. Listen, there are lies in abundance all around us. And in case you haven't been on the internet in a while, let me just tell you, lies spread way faster than truth. If the resurrection is true, it changes everything. And we must tell other people about it. If the resurrection is true, you've heard me say that over and over and over again, because here's the thing, that's the question. That's the central question that you are faced with, that I am faced with today. Is the resurrection true? The question isn't, should I worship God? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then that just answers itself. The question isn't, should I be fearful or joyful? Because if he rose from the dead, it answers itself. Should I tell other people about it? Well, if it's true, then for sure. The question is, is it true? And that's a question that each and every one of us must answer for ourselves. Am I going to believe that this is true? And here's the thing, I can't escape it. I can't get around it. And I've tried over and over again, but I can't. And it fills me with fear and it fills me with joy. It's the reason that I worship. It's the reason that I tell others about Jesus. I cannot get around it. And if you believe it too, then maybe, maybe you're sort of person who like, you're like, yeah, I, I do believe it. But what does that even look like? What do I do with that? How do I actually follow Jesus? How do I actually worship him? Right? Maybe you're hearing me say things like, this changes everything. And you're thinking like, well, what does that actually look like? Well, if you want to understand more of what that looks like to really follow after Jesus, here's the opportunity I just want to give to you today. Listen, we're always ready to have a conversation, but I just want to give you a particular opportunity today. If that's where you're at, you just want to ask some of those questions. I want to invite you to have a conversation with me. And here's what's going to happen. We're going to, in a moment, we're going to pray, and then we're going to take communion. And at the end of communion, you'll see me and and Frankie walk down this aisle to the back of the room. And when we get back there, I'm just going to stand there while the band is playing. And I'm going to invite you that if you want to have a conversation, come have a conversation. Let's talk about what it actually looks like to follow Jesus like he was actually raised from the dead. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what what incredible joy you bring that you would that you would go to death, but that you would refuse to stay dead that you would grasp a hold of victory and raise back from the dead. And then that you would look at us, even us, and that you would say to us, even as you said to these women in our text, just, just greetings. Here I am. Here I am, raised from the dead. That you would display yourself to us, would thank you. Lord, we give you praise for that. Lord, we worship you, our risen, risen God, our risen King, our risen Lord. And so, Lord, we pray 
Lord, we pray for those who even in this room or, or those that we will encounter, Lord, who do not yet know you. We ask, Lord, that you would display yourself to them in such a way that they cannot get around you. And they would fall on their knees and worship you. And Lord, we pray the same for each one of us, Lord, that we would worship you and then that we would tell others about you. Lord, would you finally and fully convince us that you have conquered all our fears and so we can live fully for you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.